You're listening to Titan Nature's Yellowstone, a podcast for those that don't get out, can't get out, or can never get enough. Sponsored by Think Tank Photo. Think Tank Photo designs camera carrying solutions for working professionals. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Titan Nature's Yellowstone. Today, we're back with, with it with an interview with Kira Cassidy. Welcome to the show, Kira. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Kira, you work for the Park Service, right? So technically, yes. Okay. Um, I work for the Yellowstone Wolf Project, which is a National Park Service program. And some of that funding for that program comes from the Park Service, and some of it comes from Yellowstone Forever, the Park uh nonprofit partner. And that's part of my job is paid through that nonprofit partner. Okay. So what does your job entail? Do you work? I know you do work with wolves. Do you work with any other species as well? I'm mostly focused on wolves. Although until recently when Doug Smith, who was my supervisor until he retired just a couple of weeks ago, um, he also oversees the bird program. And so I will occasionally help out with them um, and then we also do some elk research. We have elk collared. And then Dan Saylor oversees the Yellowstone Cougar Project. He's also the Wolf Project's uh, biologist. And so we all kind of work together. So I would say out of a whole year, I might spend as much as a month helping out on other projects, but the rest of it is pretty much wolves. How did you get started with the wolves? What's What brought you to wolves in Yellowstone? So... When I was working on my undergraduate degree at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, I didn't know anything about the Wolf Project at the time, but met a graduate student who had worked here for a bit, and she suggested that I uh, put in an application to do winter study, which is this long-term program that the Wolf Project does twice a year, 30 days uh, where we bring in volunteers, and they will follow different wolf packs, trying to figure out kill rate mostly, but also collecting a bunch of really cool behavioral observation data. And we also fly every day, 30 days, every day that it's good weather at least. And when she said you should apply for winter study, I looked into it a bit more. I was still working on my undergrad, uh, but I only had one semester left. And so when I applied, uh, I got the position and so came out to Yellowstone. I'd been out to Yellowstone, but just on a family vacation before. And so to come out where the whole focus was being out in the field every day, collecting data, getting to know a wolf pack, you know, at the individual level, seeing different personalities, I just thought was so fascinating. And so I came back to do that a few different times over the next year. This is in 2007. And then I went to graduate school, focusing on wolf research, territoriality between packs mostly. And when I finished that, Doug Smith um, actually offered me a research associate position. And so I've been in this position now for just over 10 years. And I like to think of this job kind of split up into three different categories where I spend about a third of my time in the field, which includes flights, but also hiking for trail cameras or necropsying dead wolves and capture. And then a third kind of taking the long-term research that the Wolf Project started collecting in 1995 with reintroduction and organizing it, asking interesting questions, analyzing it, and then writing for scientific papers. And then about a third of my job, that last third is science communication. So talking to people, going to conferences, doing field trips, 
doing podcasts. Yeah. What is your, I guess, what is your favorite part about it? What do you love to research? What do you like to learn about wolves? Yeah, some of my, so my graduate research was on territoriality between packs and kind of at a behavioral level. So which packs were more likely to win when they fought each other? It is their number one cause of mortality. And so I thought it was really important to understand that aspect of their natural history. Um, But that kind of brought in this idea of wolves living in packs. And it's something that we know about them, but we don't, in the past at least, really dig into a lot of the questions related to group living. And it's also something that we share with wolves. You know, we live in these family groups as well. And so I think um, that is one of the things I find most fascinating is that kind of like social dynamic and also the different responsibilities that individual wolves have in the pack, how they can kind of divvy up tasks um, achieve some really complex things like hunting large prey or protecting their territory by just communicating with each other. Yeah, I think a lot of people understand that, you know, wolves are in a pack. Mm-hmm. Often we think, well, there's a pack, there's an alpha male, there's an alpha female. Is that how the pack is? Is there an alpha male? Is there an alpha female? Yeah, the term alpha is actually kind of fallen out of favor between among a lot of wolf biologists. We still sometimes use it here because it is the word that people understand or at least have heard in reference to wolves there's not a great substitute for it i've started to use the word leader a bit more you know male female or sorry male leader and female leader and that actually seems to capture it slightly better because other places people have stopped using the term alpha and maybe use the term breeder or dominant or something but breeder doesn't really seem to fit our system because we do have a lot of subordinate wolves that will breed <laughs> that are not the dominant ones. And then dominant, similar to alpha, I think a lot of people had problems with that because it almost suggests that there is some kind of like an internal pack aggression or something that a pack had to win, like a, or a wolf had to win a big fight within their pack in order to get that dominant alpha position. That's kind of the negative connotation that comes with that alpha term. And so we've just kind of started switching to leader, although alpha, I think, is a perfectly fine term to use for people that understand and have heard that term before, as long as they understand that it doesn't necessarily mean that there was a fight. Because most wolf packs are, you know, the parents, a male and a female. Sometimes there are aunts and uncles within a pack and then offspring from some number of different years, usually one to three years. And then occasionally there will be a wolf that is adopted within a pack. Um, We've only recorded this with male wolves. So an unrelated one joins a pack as a subordinate. It doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen occasionally. And then of course, I mentioned those subordinate breeding wolves. If that's a female and she kind of leaves her home pack during the breeding season, gets pregnant and comes back, to her pack to have her pups. This happens quite a lot, at least a quarter, if not a third of the packs every year that we followed, we have at least one of these cases, but her pups will then be related in some way to the lead females pups, whether they're cousins or half siblings or something even further sometimes. And so you can end up with these big packs that have pretty complex relationships genetically between each other of course they're all kind of acting like a family like most wolf packs do 
as you were talking about something I've thought about is I often start telling people something um, about wolves or anything, any species Mm -hmm. and be like, well, kind of, it's always, (laughs) well, you know, it it used to be this way. And now it's kind of like this kind of like, well, it used to be an alpha and now it's more like this Mm -hmm. with what you've seen in your research for, you've been there for 10 years and you know, what you've looked at for the last night since 1995 you know, what have you seen change with our understanding of wolves? That is funny. That is the the kind of saying in ecology is that if anyone asks you something, the answer always starts with, it depends. Yes. <laughs> because it, it is so nuanced. Um, and the more we find out about nature, kind of the the more nuanced it it does seem. And I think with wolves, especially, we do know more about their social behavior in the wild than we used to. The very earliest wolf studies and even publications were on wolves that were in captivity. And now we look back at those studies and say that's very different from what we see in the wild, where there's hardly any tension within the pack, Um, maybe a little bit during the breeding season, but hardly ever where a wolf is injured. Um, It's just them communicating with each other. Kind of like if you go to, you bring your dog to a dog park and you know, there's one that maybe they're making noise, maybe they're growling or barking or something. And the other dogs know what they're saying. And so they're able to communicate and understand each other. That's just what the wolves are doing as well. But they are pretty aggressive with their neighbors. And I think early wolf studies did realize that because they were able to track out the tracks or even um, radio collared dead wolves and put together the scene based on tracks in the snow two packs that ran into each other. But now we know kind of a lot more details about those interactions and how important they are because they are the top cause of natural mortality out here, at least. And a lot of other places, wolves have been studied where they're not super impacted by people. But we just know more about their behavior, uh, how their behavior kind of changes or differentiates whether they are male or female. And then also, we haven't published this, but we are seeing a really interesting pattern where when two packs fight kind of regularly, and by regularly, I mean they might run into each other once every few weeks. Um, They might howl back and forth whenever they're within hearing distance of each other. We will often, that will often preempt a new pack forming between some wolves from pack A and some wolves from pack B kind of coming together, maybe it's temporary and it's just during the breeding season and they all go back to their home packs. And then sometimes they'll actually leave all disperse and trying to start a new pack. And so it's a very interesting dynamic that I don't think anyone's really noticed before where aggressive interactions kind of set wolves up to learn about their neighbors and learning about their neighbors can set them up to finding a mate. Yeah, that's interesting. I asked on Facebook, I said, kind of questions do people have? And one that was brought up was from Montana Yellowstone Tours. And basically they asked if wolves are spreading and you have that genetics changing and these different wolves are, are those packs going to be more likely to or less likely to fight or to have, you know, dominance over areas? Is that kind of what you're saying? Is it, you know, you have these two packs that there seems to be some conflict there, but at the same time, there's some neutral ground? Sometimes, and it might depend on the time of year. Um, We see very few aggressive interactions during the summer because wolves are mostly focused on their own pups and they're kind of centrally located in their territory. 
Uh, they're often not traveling as a big pack all together. They'll go off in ones or twos, hunting smaller things, mostly elk calves or deer. Um, and so we see a spike in aggressive interaction starting in about October and November when those pups, when everybody's traveling as one big pack together. But genetics, um, we haven't looked at this in a ton of detail yet. This is kind of on our list of potential studies in the future, but looking to see if packs, when they're fairly closely related, or even one grew up in this pack and then started a new pack in the neighboring territory, whether that affords them some kind of, you know, uh, leniency with that other pack, and maybe there are fewer aggressive interactions. It's not zero. Um, we do still see some fights between packs, even if some of them are related, but it can also depend. Are the males related? Are the females related? And then, you know, of course, there's always kind of special cases. So, yeah. But it's I guess it's kind of along with those. Uh, wasn't it Jeremy that just had mm -hmm. published a paper? I think you were in on that. Yeah. Um, where it was the Wapiti Lake pack and the three males came in from the Mollies. And then how they've dispersed, and now there's three other packs that have wolves that are breeding from the Wapiti Lake pack. Yeah, yeah, and in fact, now uh, there is a new one since we published that paper. So now there's four packs that formed from the offspring um, that wouldn't have happened except for this displacement event where the Wapiti females ended up with the three males from the Molly's pack instead of 755. And it's a very interesting combination. I think Jeremy did a great job. Um, and Jack Raby also helped to write a lot of this stuff in that paper. He was an, a co-author. They really did a, a good job, I think, of presenting kind of the discussion around that event as a combination between male-male competition and also female mate choice. And so, yes, the males were competing with each other. They were fairly aggressive to 755 the old um, lead male, and also the females were very receptive to the new males. Um, it kind of makes sense evolutionarily that a female choosing between one male that's, I think, eight years old and three males that are bigger and younger, you know, what is she going to choose to kind of give her offspring the best chance into the future? Um, it seems like they made a, those females made a really good choice. Um, it was maybe yeah. not a big competition between 755 and those Molly's males because he's outnumbered by so much. And uh, what we ended up with was now a few years later, six years later, at least four packs in the ecosystem are led by those offspring. That's really neat for me because I spend most of my time in Hayden Valley, mm -hmm. so I see the most. And so I remember that whole thing going down and watching and the back and forth. So for me, that kind of struck a chord. And I was like, oh, this is. I know this and to see the science and what's happened be since that time is really neat. Yeah. There's so many things in Yellowstone where I think, you know, so many kind of interesting events that uh, we should be writing up in these kinds of papers. And I was really glad that Jeremy took the initiative and put together that whole thing. It was a lot of work. I'm sure that's really neat. So one of the questions that was asked by Vance on Facebook, you know, how do these packs determine who's the alpha male, female in this case? Sounds like part of that is going to be dominance. In this case, we're 755 and the three males, but also age. What other things kind of determine who's the leader in the pack? 
So we have a couple of categories that allow us to check a box as we're looking at a wolf pack to figure out who is the leader. And it's two things. So it's being the most dominant over the same, the wolves that are of the same sex in the pack. That way you have a male leader and a female leader. And then the second box is that those male, the male leader and the female leaders are bonded together. And they show that by scent marking together. Sometimes we do have wolves that aren't in leadership positions scent marking as well, but it is fairly rare. So we do have to watch pretty closely for a while. Once a pair is established, they usually will stay together until one of them dies. Occasionally we do get a divorce like the Wapiti uh, pair um, where she ended up with those Molly's males instead. Um, but that's fairly rare. About eight out of 10 pairs will only end with a death. And also we did a, a fairly recent study as well that just came out um, looking at the effects of the parasite Toxoplasma gondii. And it yeah. did show that wolves that were infected were more likely to become leaders. Um, we had to control for a number of other things. And so, you know, the older a wolf gets, the more likely it has a leadership position. And then also if they lived on the Northern range, they were more likely to get a leadership position. We think that's simply because there's more pack turnover on the Northern range. There's also in these kind of complex analyses, we always add a random variable in these models that we run. That's just simply the wolf's number. And that kind of helps us account for personality. <laughs> and, and that was important. It's a little bit of a cop-out statistically because it's something that we can't measure very well. Um, but we know it's important because it always shows up as Yes, good thing you had that in that mod. Good thing you included that as a variable um, because we know that there are personality differences between wolves. Some of that might be an influence of this parasite, uh, but, you know, some of it might be separate from that as well. Talk about a couple, I'm going to, you know, ask a couple of things here. When people are coming to Yellowstone, they see a wolf or, you know, sometimes maybe it's a coyote, mm -hmm. but they're excited. That's one of the things people are looking for. Yeah. Let's say, how do you tell the difference between a wolf and a coyote? Yeah, coming to Yellowstone for the first time, and if you haven't seen a wolf, it can be pretty tricky um, because the coyotes here, especially in the winter, can look really large, um, especially if you don't have them, you know, right next to the road or not with, with something that's, you know, it gives you some kind of perspective, size perspective. I kind of like to, when I look at a wolf's face versus a coyote's face, a wolf's ears will be, you'll be able to, like if you took their size of their ears and you kind of superimposed it on their face, so their eyes to their nose, their muzzle, you can fit at least three, uh, the length of three ears onto their face. Where with a coyote, coyotes have such large ears, you can only really fit two of them in their face. And so that's kind of a good, if you have a good face on view, of course, that's not yeah. always the case. Um, coyotes seem to have these like little tiny steps that they take and they almost do this kind of like rocking horse um, type of running that you've probably seen uh, quite a lot and seem to have kind of small feet that just, you know, their leg kind of tapers down and it doesn't really spread out at all. Wolves have huge feet. Um, they're kind of snowshoe-like. They're if you see them close up, uh, 
or a wolf standing, you'll be able to see how spread out that paw is. And it's almost, you know, at least double the width of the leg itself. If you see them next to each other, you'll have no problems at all. (laughs) The wolf is two or three times larger than a coyote. They look shockingly large um, seen next to each other, but they're in general, uh, an average wolf is going to weigh 90 to 100 pounds for an adult female and about 110 to 115 pounds for an adult male. Some of them are larger than that. And I've often explained their size to to people as some people think they're kind of like a husky or a malamute that's just scaled up in size, you know, maybe like double the size of a husky. But really, they're like a huge greyhound with a thick coat on because they don't have a lot of fat. They're very narrow, uh, narrow chested. It holds kind of their big lungs. And then their legs are very long. They're if you if I were to pick one thing that a wolf is kind of evolved to do in its life, it's to travel. That's great. I like the ear analogy. It seems to fit pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. With bison, I use the horns a lot, mm-hmm. you know, as an analogy, male and female. So hearing that ear thing is is great. And, you know, it's true on that. If you don't have a reference, I think the same thing with Old Faithful. People are like, well, it's smaller than I thought. Yeah. Well, that's because you didn't have any reference. Yeah. It's 140 feet high. Right. Yeah. And I will say for people that if you're unsure if you're seeing a wolf or a coyote, it's likely you're seeing a coyote because then when you see a wolf, you'll think, oh, okay, that's a, that's a wolf. It's usually a bit more yeah. obvious. Yeah, coyotes, they're very prevalent in the park, and there's a lot of them. I don't think they have any numbers. Um, but how about wolves? How many wolves are in Yellowstone? We are just now kind of um, trying to get down to our official end-of-the-year count. Uh, and we're looking at somewhere right around 110 to 115, which is – very similar to the numbers for the last decade, actually. That's kind of, it's it's very, it's changed very little between 80 and 120 wolves since 2009. So over a decade, 13 years now. And yeah, it's kind of stayed steady, but we do now have 11 packs, which is more than we've had in the last three or four years. We've kind of been in the eight or nine pack range. And so our pack size is slightly smaller. Um, for a few years, we were getting our average pack size of around 12, maybe even 13. Uh, and then this year, it looks like it's going to be an average pack size of around 10, which is what it was in years past, you know, the early 2000s, maybe late 1990s. But just compared to recent years, it's a little bit smaller, except for the Junction Butte pack, which has somewhere around 24 pack members right now. We're still trying to get the exact number. It might be 25. Besides them and the Cougar Creek pack, which is at 15, most of the rest of the packs are a little bit below average sized. Okay. Here's a question. That's from my own personal knowledge. Mm-hmm. I love the Wapitis because that's what I spend the most time with watching. They split. Is that an official two packs now? Okay. Yes. So Wapiti, starting about this time last year, were splitting. And it was very interesting because some wolves were split off, mostly the older females had found a new male but then they that group split into two by the breeding season in march they all came back together which we didn't expect doesn't happen very often um and they had a new male who was a young male from the eight mile pack with them and so they were back together in march by april when they were all having their pups 
they split into two again. And this time it seemed like, okay, now they're split for good. They had less of that kind of going back and forth. And so we have a main Wapiti Lake pack. There's 10 of them. They had a couple of females that had pups, but only one litter survived. And then only one pup out of that litter is still alive now. Very much uh, smaller than they've been in recent years. I don't think they've yeah. been this small since maybe 2016 or so. And so a little bit of a new world for them. They haven't come up to the Northern range at all, which I think is probably because they're fairly small and they don't want to run into Junction Butte or Eight Mile. When they were a big pack, they could kind of do whatever they wanted. And now maybe they kind of understand we can't do exactly everything that we want. And then the split off, some of those older females, we're not sure who the lead male is in the group. He's uncollared. We don't know where he came from. But we started calling them the Firehole Lake Pack, or sorry, Firehole River Pack in somewhere around July. It seemed like they were split off maybe a, maybe a month or two earlier um, because we're kind of basing this on the radio locations for the GPS callers and how they were split. Um, so sometime over the summer, they've been two separate packs ever since. So talking about Hayden, you know, the wolves down there, Wapiti Lake Pack, you have these different areas. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody coming to Yellowstone and they want to see a wolf, where should they go to see a wolf? Is it going to be easy for them? Good question. Um, I will always say that the Northern Range is probably um, the best bet, you know, if you have just one day or something. Um, and then it depends a little bit on the time of year. So in the summer, I would say going out towards Lamar Valley is probably the best best chances because the Junction Butte pack is out there and they have in previous years denned within sight of the road near Slough Creek. And so people can actually go park out at Slough Creek and either bring a spotting scope or binoculars or something and be able to sometimes see the den. There's also a lot of people already watching that are usually willing to share their spotting scope and let people look through that's somewhere in the like May, June, July time. They have, the pack has in previous years then moved into Lamar Valley for their rendezvous. So a rendezvous, to, a rendezvous is where the pack keeps their pups and it's not underground. They don't really need to be underground when they reach that. They're a few months old at that point, but they do need to be somewhere protected and where the rest of the adults know we bring food back to this area. It's usually kind of marshy. And the Junction Butte Pack has used the Lomar Valley for their rendezvous site um, for a, most of the last three or four years, I think. And so I would say July, August, September, sometimes even into October, the pack is fairly reliable in those places. And then once we get those first early snows and the elk start moving a little bit from summer range down to winter range, the pups start to travel with the pack. Sometimes it's just short trips. But it's very quickly goes from staying at the rendezvous within a couple of weeks there with the adults full time. And so then they can kind of go wherever they want. It's a little bit harder to know exactly where to go in that scenario to see wolves. But I think the northern range is a good bet because the road does kind of cross through several packs territories. So there's a chance all the way from Mammoth to Lamar of seeing something. Actually, Mammoth all the way to um, like Pebble Creek, because there's another little pack way out um, on the east side of Lamar now. She, she was a female that 
used to live in the Junction Butte pack, but dispersed and started her own little pack. There's only four of them. So I think they'd be maybe tough to see, but that would be quite a treat if someone did see them. And then Wapiti Lake, as you mentioned, is down in Hayden. Sometimes they'll go over to the Old Faithful area as well. And so it's a little bit of a toss up once you, where you're driving from, what turn you take, either right or left, once you get to Madison Junction, which way you're going to go. Um, but they are the one pack that is more used to the road than other packs as well. They will sometimes in the winter even travel on the road past snowmobilers um, and snow coaches. We do try to discourage that behavior a little bit because it makes them more susceptible to dying, either being hit by a car or doing that outside the park and being shot or being fed, which if someone you know tosses something out of the snow coach and they eat it, wolves are very smart. And so they kind of switch their behavior immediately to trying to do that. And then sometimes the park has actually had to lethally remove wolves. It hasn't happened for a while, but they've had to do that twice, I think in 09 and 2011, because a wolf got fed. Um, and so we try to keep them kind of wary of the road by either yelling or banging on the side of the vehicle. We do have paintball guns too that we will use um, if they get, you know, worse and worse. Try and keep them wary of people, keep them wary of the road. That said, Wapiti Lake, because the road is groomed, will kind of like the bison do, travel down it um, and can afford really great views. <laughs> Yeah, so here's a question for you. If somebody's in the park, and this could be for, you know, a guide this winter, somebody visiting for the first time, they see a wolf, you know, or they, you know, you're supposed to be that hundred yards, but mm -hmm. it's on the road, it's coming to you, it's stopped in the road. What do you do? I mean, yeah. what should you do? I mean, I, I don't think that I would never tell someone don't look at it and drive away because it's an amazing experience to be able to see a wolf that close. But I think, you know, if you you know, look at it stop even just take a picture or two and then drive on if it does seem so kind of our threshold if it seems like it's making eye contact with you it sees you stop and it comes towards you then yeah doing something like honking the horn um it's not a bad idea to try and get animals off the road when you run into them if they seem like they're just kind of lingering on the road yeah, it's it's a little bit of a gray area because it seems like every situation is slightly different. You know, is it in the middle of the night? Is it with a bunch of other cars around? Are you going to be disturbing a bunch of other people? And so it can get really tricky really quickly uh, to try and offer advice. But if it were me and a wolf's traveling down the road uh, or maybe just off the road or something, I would pull over if there's a pullout and watch it and if it just goes on by me okay um but if it stops and looks at me i would probably say you know honk the horn or bang on the side of the car just to get it off that road if it was a wolf that's off the road and kind of doing its own thing then i would enjoy from a pullout and you know as long as the wolf's not like making eye contact or coming towards me then it's a pretty cool experience it is, it is. And the park regulation is that you have to be um, 100 yards away from a wolf and bear and 25 yards away from everything else. And I know that there are some new regulations um, or kind of nuances in that regulation that people should check out the park newspaper um, because there are some, there was some discussion about 
how much people have to maintain that distance. You know, if an animal moves towards them, let's say a bear is grazing near the road and it's at a hundred yards to begin with, but you're at your car and taking photos. If the bear moves and it's like right next to your car, all of a sudden, I think you do have to move the vehicle. Um, people should check out the new regs. Cause I think there were some more details put in the, the paper recently. Thank you. Yeah. It's one of those that I think it's sometimes it's tricky. People don't understand what to do. Yep. I think just remember it's wild. It's yeah. natural. Don't feed it, you know, enjoy it, but don't interfere what it's doing unless, you know, anyways, I think what you said is perfect. A couple other questions. Wolves howl. Mm -hmm. Is that the only way they communicate? And what are they saying when they howl? The howls are their best long distance communication. Um, and most of the time when I see wolves howl, it is to either keep track of pack mates. So let's say they got separated during a hunt or something and they howl to each other. And then it usually doesn't last very long, just a few howls and then they get back together. They can kind of pinpoint where the other one is. Other cases, a pack will howl all together. They're all together to begin with. Maybe they were sleeping. They start howling and another pack answers, maybe from a few miles away. And then they kind of go back and forth doing that. That often involves some kind of rallying where the pack will get up and they'll start interacting and socializing with each other, jumping on each other, tails wagging and licking and everything. They're kind of amping each other up, I think, because they're hearing a a neighbor or a competitor, you know, are we going to go towards them? Should we get out of here? They're kind of bonding socially as well during what's probably at least slightly a stressful situation, although you wouldn't know it because of all the tail wagging. So they like being together. Um, they make a lot of small noises uh, amongst each other that we just can't hear because we are sometimes watching from a mile or two away just through spotting scopes. I've spent some time in the Arctic um, studying uh, wolves on Ellesmere Island, and we were able to get very close to them because they don't have this fear of people. And so I was able to hear a lot more of that, the little whines to each other or little huffing noises. Um, it was really interesting to me. Whenever an adult came back to the den, they might be 50 yards away and they're already starting to whine. And as they get closer and closer to the den, when the pups hear it, finally, sometimes they have to get close. Sometimes they'll hear it further away. That's when the pups run out because they, this is kind of their uh, heads up as the adults are coming back. Like, hey guys, hey guys. And so they come yeah. out and they'll mob the adults to try and be fed. And you've probably seen a few cases yourself where wolves all seem to be sleeping. And usually they're kind of spread out. Um, they don't really sleep you know, all curled up in a pile together. That happens occasionally, but not very often. And then one wolf might look up and all of a sudden the rest of the wolves look up and they may be even standing. And depending on what the thing is that they heard, maybe it was a person, maybe it was a bison herd. All of a sudden the wolves are either running away or maybe running towards something. And there was some little noise that was made there that we couldn't hear because we're watching from so far away. But you've probably heard your dog make this noise when someone it's not someone who's rung the doorbell yet but maybe they heard a car door slam or something and they do the kind of like <laughs> and it's the underbark i've heard it called and it's not to bark at anything not to like bark at someone at the door not to bark at the mailman it's to just let the family know hey 
something's up and it's just for you um who's in the same room like be on alert something's going on and i think that's the little noise that the wolves make to kind of make everybody look up and be on alert and then they can decide what they do maybe it's something scary maybe it's something interesting like an elk herd running by and they can go check it out but that little underbark is kind of the noise that they make to let everybody know uh heads up you you were mentioning scent marking earlier and so typically with scent marking you're talking about urinating is that right yes urination yeah but then wolves have other scent glands don't they wolves do have i don't know a ton about scent glands um i think there are there used to be some studies done in captivity looking at certain scent glands you know like the the dark mark on the back of this tail was considered a scent gland some people consider between the toes a scent gland and it's it's not like what you find on like an elk or something where it actually does seem to be a gland um where scent is brought from it for wolves it's more like and dogs it's more like the follicles are slightly different shaped and so they hold scent better and in the feet especially for wolves they hold um because they're also some of the only places wolves and canids sweat they hold scent that is probably individual marker or individual signatures and so wolves can actually know who has made a track by that individual scent um in their their foot or their track the back of the tail thing is odd to me um i haven't heard a lot of recent research on that because wolves do smell each other's hind ends but it's not so much that what has been called a scent mark before um i almost wonder if that mark is more for some visual cue to each other you know as they're traveling with each other kind of like you know a a tiger or a, a bobcat or something has the white spots on the back of its ears part of the evolutionary uh, explanation for that that is just a theory is that it helps their kittens that are behind them keep track of them um, when they see okay. those spots and so I don't know if that spot is similar for wolves because they don't have the spots on the back of the ears but maybe the spot on the back of the tail helps them kind of pick each other out in low light maybe while they're hunting maybe so they can kind of coordinate a hunt better together they do have the spots that are kind of eyebrow like and then the rings usually around the lower parts of the eyes, the gray ones especially. And those are um, for the purpose of kind of accentuating their expression to each other. And so that a wolf maybe 50 yards away from another wolf, if it looks to the side, they can kind of follow each other's um, eyesight. They do have light irises, unlike many wild animals. But humans and wolves and lions are some of the only ones um, that do have those really light irises. And you can imagine that that might be because they need to follow each other's eye line silently because they do need to cooperatively hunt. I got one more question and then we'll kind of wrap this up. Why are wolves different colors? Why do you get black wolves and gray wolves and white wolves? Yeah, great question. The um, So in Yellowstone, we have both the gray kind of classic what you think of we call it gray but really it's you know kind of creamy and brown and kind of rusty color all mixed together in a a pretty typical pattern lighter on the bottom darker on the top and then black sometimes you can still see a little bit of that variation with the darker on top and the the eye mask and everything 
And th those are two kind of broad categories. The black coat color actually came from a mutation in a domestic dog. And it was so long ago that this was a domestic dog at least 7,000 years ago. So it was a domestic dog that looked a lot like a um, wolf still. Probably somewhere up in the Yukon, uh, geneticists have done really cool studies trying to pinpoint where a mutation happened. And they can take samples from wolves currently to try and figure out when and where it happened. So up in uh, the Yukon, likely somewhere, it was a domestic dog that someone had probably, you know, their ancestors brought across on the Bering Land Bridge. And then it crossbred back with a wolf and gave that mutation to the wolves. And now a bunch of them have it. Um, are there ones that are more likely to get that? So they, it is the dominant coat color. It's just, it's only um, uh, coated by one gene, which is not very common in a complex animal for something as obvious as coat color to be coded by a gene. And so it is dominant. Um, so that means that two black wolves can actually have the recessive gray coat color gene as well. Two gray wolves can only have gray pups because they're all recessive coat color, but two black wolves can have some gray pups. And then a black and a gray pair, which is most of the pairs that we see, actually, it's very interesting. They seem to pick mates that look the opposite of them. And it's not like they know what color they are or what color their mate is compared to them, but it does seem like there's some kind of a um, attraction to uh differences in in that way that are kind of genetic and it makes sense there actually are some studies on humans showing that humans will choose partners that are uh have a very different bacterial signature than they themselves do and this is evolution's way of making sure that offspring have kind of the best uh case scenario you know bacterial signature from this parent and bacterial signature from this parent if they were the same then there's kind of no point in having offspring. But if they're different, then the offspring has a really good um, chance of being healthier. And um, we also, besides the gray and the black coat color, you've probably seen this a lot, especially with Wapiti, where some of the gray wolves will actually be so light by the time they reach kind of elderly age, maybe four, five, six years old, they're nearly white. And then in some of them, they'll actually turn pure white and almost be you know, the color of like a polar bear or something with no variation in that coat at all. And then some of the black wolves that start off kind of this jet black when they're young will gray in different patterns. Some of them, it's just the face. Some of them, it's the feet and the face and the chest and all kind of the lower part of their body. And then in other ones, if you remember 755, he turned kind of that like silvery pewter color across his entire body. And so that is a probably a different set of or a combination of several different genes because we haven't been able to pinpoint or really look at that with as much detail as the black versus gray. But there are some genes that clearly show wolves lightening, so gray to white, and then also black to kind of silver with age. It's probably something very similar to humans. Uh, so, you know, some humans will turn grayer with age. Some people go straight to white, um, depending on their hair color when they're younger. And then other people keep their dark hair color their entire life. Um, and it's probably 
genetically related. The oldest wolf in Yellowstone right now is number 907. She's the lead female of the Junction Butte pack. And she looks almost the same that she did as a pup. She has not lightened at all with age, yet a bunch of these females in the Wapiti Lake pack will be very light and even white by the time they're four or five years old. Last thing here is somebody's coming to the park, they see a wolf. What should they look for? I mean, what what would stand out? Because I always say, hey, look for behavior. Mm-hmm. What are they doing? What would you say? Yeah, the behavior is probably going to be the most interesting. And the you'll see the best behavior if you are quiet. <laughs> it's really hard in the park because, you know, if you see something you've never seen in your life, you're bound to get excited and yell to your family like, hey, look at this. Um, but if you can try to be as quiet as possible, that means not slamming any doors. I've had people before be really quiet and really good. And then they slam the car door and the wolf takes off. Um, so try and, you know, maybe stay in the car if possible. Stay really quiet. Roll down your windows. Uh, wolves will sometimes travel alone. But uh, where there's one wolf, I would be looking for others. You may be seeing the one that is the most comfortable around people. Um, and so if it's just walking around, maybe look in the trees and see if its pack mates are all in the trees moving around. Also, keep an ear out for ravens, because if the wolf has a kill around, uh, ravens and magpies will often give it away. And you might be able to see where they've been feeding or see the rest of the pack that's feeding. Yeah, just keep an eye out. And then also, it's really cool if you're able to look through binoculars or something and see the color of a wolf's eyes. They vary from kind of this light white yellow, um, their iris, to kind of this gold color. And then some of the older wolves will actually have brown irises as well. And so you can kind of get, in some cases, an idea of the age of the wolf just by looking at those irises. Um, And then it's, it's pretty special to be able to, you know, share that gaze as well. So enjoy it while you can. It might only last a few seconds. So just enjoy and then you'll be able to talk about it, you know, the rest of your trip. Well, thank you. Thank you for your time today, Kira. Thanks for having one me. One last thing I wanted, yeah, one last thing I wanted to mention is you're also an artist, right? Yes, I do. I spend a lot of time um, painting, mostly watercolor, occasionally acrylics, especially in the yeah. winter because I have a little bit more time. The days are so short. I come home and it's what I love to do. And I think I have a couple of your stickers on my water bottles. Oh, nice. I think I got some owls from you yeah and the only one i haven't put on my water bottle is a boreal owl because i'm waiting to see one yep. <laughs> um but i got the great gray and i think a pygmy on there so if people are interested in checking out your artwork where would they go um i do have an instagram page that i'll occasionally put artwork on and then i have stickers like the ones you're talking about the owls sometimes in stores around gardner montana uh, or people can just, you know, message me on Instagram and I can, I have a, a bunch of stickers. I was going to do a sale for Christmas and I'm kind of running out of time. So if people are interested, just reach out through there. Okay. Well, thank you for your time. And thank you for everybody tuning in to another episode of Titan Nature's Yellowstone. Thanks for listening to Titan Nature's Yellowstone, the podcast for those that don't get out, can't get out, or can never get enough. Keep up to date with Titan Nature and Think Tank Photo on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube.